Hi, folks. We are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you have time, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us, and we read them for your feedback. We'd also love you to join in financially supporting the show, if you're able. You can find out more at ourbodypolitik.com slash donate. We are here for you, with you, and because of you. Thank you. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. Jackson, Mississippi is recovering from a water crisis of epic proportions. Just over one month ago, historic rainfall flooded the Pearl River, causing several pumps to fail at a water treatment plant. That resulted in more than 100,000 residents not being able to use the water in their city. This event highlights the increasing instability of the water supply in many cities across the U.S., and many of the areas experiencing water difficulties are communities made up predominantly of black and brown residents. Some people say this is a racial justice issue, and communities of color have long gotten less from the state than white communities. The city of Jackson had already been under a month-long state-imposed boil water notice, one of 300 within the past two years. The EPA launched an investigation into the Jackson water situation, and after a series of improvements had been made to the affected plant, the city lifted its boil water notice. Still, the Department of Justice has threatened to file legal action against the city under the Safe Drinking Water Act, as Jackson's water system had been deemed inadequate and in need of a temporary third-party management. Troy Johnson is an anchor and reporter at WAPT-TV in Jackson. He covered the crisis since the beginning and continues to report on the state of Jackson's water supply. Troy spoke with us on Our Body Politic on Monday, September 13th, three days before the city lifted its boil water notice. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Troy. Farai, it's such a pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, and thanks for your work. And also found out you used to work in my hometown of Baltimore, which is <laughs> That's right. great to hear. So you live in Jackson, you work in Jackson. Mm-hmm. Just give us a rundown of the current situation. Well, it's one that uh, you, you pretty much encapsulated. There is no end in sight to fix for the water issues that the city is undertaking. There are a myriad of, of reasons for it. There are a myriad of finger-pointing options that you could have. It's just a, a really interesting situation that there's no real great answer to. There is work being done to the OB Curtis water treatment plant as of now, One of the main pumps has been replaced, so it's increased the water flow, so people are now getting water into their homes. But that's just making sure that the system is working properly. A lot of people know that there's been an extended boil water notice. Well, prior to when this boil water notice went into effect, which was the end of July, I believe, There was about a two-week period prior to that where there was no boil water notice. And just before that, there was a 30-day boil water notice. Mm. So there have been extended boil water notices. I don't recall a full citywide boil water notice last year, but at some point, there may have been a boil water notice in some part of the city for the better part of 239 days. So this is a constant, even the mayor, Mayor uh, Shokwe Antar Lumumba, has described this as, you know, uh, a city water system that is in crisis mode constantly. So it's a long-term problem. Yeah, let's hear a little bit of Mayor Lumumba from a joint news conference with the governor and the administrator of the EPA. 
one of the things that was most important to me uh, was the component of us continuing to lean in together, uh, making certain that, that we have some frequency of discussion to make certain that everything is uh, flowing as it should and that we can see the ultimate improvements to OB Curtis and more importantly, just the uh, water distribution system of Jackson being sustainable, uh, being uh, reliable and important to me being equitable across the city. Are things flowing as they should between Mayor Lumumba and Governor Tate Reeves? That is the $100,000 question. Um, when this water situation began, there was a sense that both of these men have set aside whatever differences that they may have. You know, the governor, Tate Reeves, is a Republican. Mayor Lumumba is a Democrat in a red state. Um, there obviously is some friction there. Uh, I think from a state and a city and a federal situation, everyone wants to get this fixed. But the governor has also been critical since this water system began about a week or so ago. He was being critical about the city and whether or not they had a plan for the future of this water system. And the governor believes that this is a water system that should generate enough revenue to help sustain repairs and upkeep. But there's been an ongoing problem with water billing in this city for a very long time. Some people haven't paid bills. Some people are getting, you know, one month get a $130 bill and then the next month it's a $2,000 bill. So there is some mm -hmm. inconsistency in the billing. That is, you know, an underlying problem with why there's no money in many instances to get these things fixed. You know, I think they're willing to, in general, lay their differences aside. But I, I found it kind of interesting for the governor criticizing um, this problem when people can't drink the water that's coming out of their sink. Right. You know, this may not be the time to make that political statement. But again, that's kind of where we are right now. So as a reporter and as a resident of the city, how does Jackson fit into the big picture of Mississippi politics? Mm. That's a, that's a very good question. It's the epicenter in a way. It's the state capital. And what appears, as from someone who's not a native Jacksonian or Mississippian for that regard, it appears to me that there's something between the state and the city. I believe that there have been issues in some way over the last 15, 20 years. You've had African-American mayors, again, in a state that's kind of transitioned into a red state. But prior to that, I think even when there may have been white mayors leading this city, when it comes to the legislature, you have rural lawmakers versus urban lawmakers. And I think maybe um, maybe some have taken issue with the fact, why are we sending all this money, quote unquote, to Jackson for this or for that when, you know, what's happening in my county, in my rural area? So there, there are a couple of dynamics here. You know, it reminds me a bit of Flint, Michigan, with its mm -hmm. water crisis, but also urban and rural. And, and um, in one of my previous jobs, I spent a lot of time looking at the relationship of rural Michigan politicians mm -hmm. to urban Michigan politicians, including in Detroit. So, you know, both cities, meaning Flint and Jackson, that have had these massive water crises, have a large black population, a lower tax base than some other areas in the state. How does that factor into 
how you're covering this at this point as a journalist, you know, to, to weave in these threads? I think they're critical to telling this story in full. This is a city that's 82% Black. Mm. And in the 1980s, mid-80s, it was a city that was 50% White. So clearly, white flight led to a lower tax base. Why did those white people leave Jackson, Mississippi? You can trace a line back to when schools began to be integrated. Mm-hmm. You know, many white families said that they were not going to have their kids go to school with black kids. And from a little bit of the information that I've read about and, and kind of looked through, those families took their kids out of Jackson Public Schools and put them into private academies. And um, some of those academies still exist today, and they're now integrated. But at the time, they were for a specific reason. As happened throughout much of the U.S., Virginia, many other states. Exactly, exactly. So those were the cornerstones for now some of those bedroom communities, those metro communities that are now thriving. You know, if you have the tax-based money that left the city, this is a city that, uh, again, when I moved here four years ago, there wasn't a movie theater here Hmm. because they're in one of the towns like Ridgeland or or Madison, which are right outside of the city of Jackson city limits. Right. You know, the Costco is not in Jackson. It's in another town. So I think when you can physically see the elements that make a city stronger, the live, work, play elements that we all want, and you see them in communities just outside of the actual city, a city that happens to be the state capital, it's like, what's going on here? Do you have a sense of moral disappointment or fatigue as a citizen, not as a journalist, but, you know, just to look as a Black resident of the capital of your state that is in this desperate situation with water? What is the arc of moral justice, do you think, in this situation? I am... (laughs) for better or for worse, an optimist. In the world of social media that we have now, when people are looking at a city and they're critical of what they see happening, you see a city that can't fix its water issues on its own. There are people that love to get anonymously on social media and harshly criticize the mayor, harshly criticize from a maybe a racial purview about them not being able to get things done. You know, just like any other city, there could be issues with crime. After this pandemic, we saw a spike in crime all over the United States. But it's because they're trying to paint a narrative about what's happening here. Me as an optimist, I feel like if you fix this water system, this could be the beginning of some very strong positives for Jackson. If you know you have a sound infrastructure, businesses will want to come here. They will see opportunity, but it's kind of hard to to plug in, you know, a massive corporate operation when you don't have sustainable water, for example. That's just one of the utilities that you expect to be operational when you arrive somewhere. So it feels like um, 
as dire as things are now, if things can be worked out, if there are federal dollars, if there is a, a will to work across the different levels of government, it can be fixed. At least it appears that way to me. I don't know how long it will take to make that happen, but I believe that, you know, I believe the possibility is there. That was Troy Johnson, news anchor at WAPT-TV, talking about the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi. Coming up next, I continue my conversation with Jackson, Mississippi reporter and news anchor Troy Johnson about the impact the city's water crisis had on communities of color. Plus, later we take a look at election security with Kim Whaley, a law professor, author, and advisor at Protect Democracy, and Tammy Patrick, a senior advisor to the elections program at Democracy Fund. That's on Our Body Politics. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Jackson, Mississippi reporter Troy Johnson about the latest water crisis facing the city after multiple pumps broke last month at a water treatment plant. He's a news anchor at WAPT-TV. The pump's failure caused at least 150,000 residents to be without water for weeks and led to increased scrutiny from the EPA. They've had an ongoing investigation into Jackson's water system. Here's the rest of our conversation. How are you reporting on the relationship of the EPA to this whole water crisis? Jackson has had water issues for decades. Um, The water problems here may have even um, caused some financial penalty to the city. This has been something that the EPA has been very angry about, how things have been running here in this situation where you're at dire circumstances. There hasn't been a lot of conversation about, you know, how many fines have been tabulated against the city of Jackson, or is that a big concern from the EPA's standpoint? The administrator, Michael Regan, was here primarily to make sure that the city and the state were on the same page in terms of how to move forward. So there is much more federal coordination and making sure that things run smoothly. And those egos and those, you know, whatever that anger or whatever is going on or not going on, perhaps, doesn't get in the way of of making progress on getting fixes together. So the EPA has not really been like, yeah, we're going to fix this, but you guys have had multiple fines along the way. There's no conversation like that. But it's but it is a part of the story that's going to have to be told on a more broad standpoint. Looking at the broad, grand scale of things here locally is not something that we do on a daily basis. But uh, it will be part of stories uh, that are coming up in the future. We talked a little bit about Flint, but there's many cities across the country, like my hometown and your former city of residence and work, Baltimore, Benton Harbor in Michigan, Honolulu, the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, large populations of people of color and water issues. As a reporter especially, how do you connect the dots and where should we be putting our attention on not just local and regional problems, but the national picture? Mm -hmm. I think that there are examples of um, something that you alluded to in the beginning of this, environmental racism. You know, how do communities of color end up in these situations, you know, whole cities dealing with catastrophic infrastructure problems when 20 miles away, there are not any. 
Mm-hmm. I think it's too convenient for people to say, well, the city, maybe they didn't maintain the water system the way that we think that they should have. And well, maybe the state didn't offer the funds that they should have. There is more to it. And there's a longer arc to it as well. If you look back to the 70s, when President Carter was in office, cities like Jackson, cities like Baltimore, all over the country, there was a an effort to move forward large infrastructure projects in many cities. I think the city of Jackson was looking at the possibility of maybe $90 million at that time in the 70s. That's a lot of money uh, to work on some water issues in the city. But uh, by the time the Reagan administration had come into office in the mid-1980s, those funds were taken out of the plan. Reagan, of course, cut back on social programming and funding for those kinds of projects. So if you go from thinking you're going to have $90 million at that that time, and then a decade later, that money is nowhere to be found, but you're setting up a plan to implement and fix things that needed to be fixed, that, that's devastating in some way. Even with the Biden administration's Build Back Better uh, and all that money for infrastructure, how long is it going to take to implement that in a city like Baltimore or Jackson or Flint? It's going to take some time. So people are still going to be struggling with the problems that they have right now. And something that I have to interject here about the overall health of a city, we haven't even really talked about the financial impact to restaurants and businesses that rely on water. You know, there are places that are considering moving out of the city because it costs a lot of money to, on a daily basis, provide enough water and ice to serve you and me a glass of iced tea at lunch. There are a lot of economic underpinnings in this story that are going to have to be told as well. So Charles Wilson III is a Jackson resident with a young son who he fears has lead poisoning now. He says legal recourse is the only way to help. Well, we know they're not going to tell the truth. We know that they're not going to admit. So the only thing I can think of is legal action. So do you think that this is going to end up in the courts? And what do your neighbors think? How do your neighbors feel? You know, it's logical for folks to demand an answer to why. Again, the conversation is centered around the water plant and getting it operational, getting it to operate at 100%. We have not talked about the pipes that are more than 70 years old in this city that need to be repaired. And the fact that the mayor believes that this is a $1 to $2 billion project to fix what's going on underneath the city. Um, there, there have been viral videos of people opening up their tap and the water looks like chocolate milk. I saw a video recently on Twitter from a, actually a newsprint reporter based on, on the tweets, doesn't live far from where I live. My water looks okay, but it could be, you know, maybe there's a bad pipe near that person's home. You know, you just don't know what, it's two different things. Does the water plant work properly and all the water is filtrated and it is pristine and delicious? Sure. But when it goes into the pipes, what happens there? Yep. So there is big concern. And I, I think that not only for citizens to take legal action, but, but you know, maybe the city might have to take legal action to make sure that they get the funds to fix what needs to be fixed, what has languished for such a long time. 
Well, Troy, I'm just really grateful for your time and perspective and your reporting. Thanks so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. That was Troy Johnson, reporter and news anchor at WAPT-TV in Jackson, Mississippi. This week, many of us are watching the impact of Hurricane Ian on Florida and Cuba. Just days before Ian made landfall, another hurricane, Fiona, knocked out the power in Puerto Rico and left extensive damage to infrastructure. This happened near the five-year anniversary of the devastation wrought in Puerto Rico by Hurricane Maria. As of this Wednesday, hundreds of thousands of residents were still without power. So we're revisiting my conversation with former mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico, Carmen Juline Cruz. In a recent interview with Boston's GBH News, Cruz said that the power grid had not been rebuilt to withstand the current outages. Five years have been lost uh, of making sure that especially the microgrid in Puerto Rico is, is robustly reconstructed. Among her many accomplishments, Cruz spearheaded the disaster relief response in San Juan following Hurricanes Irma and Maria. Cruz remains a fierce advocate for her former constituents as people seek to rebuild from Hurricane Fiona today. Here's my conversation with former Mayor Cruz on her political leadership and how she guided her constituents through the aftermaths of Hurricane Irma and Maria. Mayor Cruz, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for for having me. You know, from what I can tell, you're setting a compass for women from around the world who are already leaders in many ways to understand their own power and to learn how to use it. Is that how you think of what you're you're working on right now? So one of the things that I learned before the hurricane just catapulted me into this um, madness of, of being on the world stage was that you had to speak up, that that speaking up was important and that there was no such thing as voiceless. People had a voice, they just don't have a platform. You, in 2012, won the San Juan mayoral election, defeating a 12-year incumbent who called you Esa Senora. That woman. That woman. That woman. And so how did it feel to stand up for your leadership when, to some people, you were esa senora? Well, you know, interestingly enough, I was the one on the ballot, but it wasn't me that was on the ballot. I I represented and I was the echo of thousands of voices that were tired of having their rights trampled on, of having a person that had no use for the LGBT community, you're not going to believe this, right? but I went from being from the far right of the political party that I belong to, the Popular Democratic Party, which mm-hmm. is similar to the Democratic Party in the U.S., to being in the far left of the party, mm. um, in the very progressive and very liberal side of the party. And it was because I allowed all those voices to enter into my mind and my soul and my brain and have the stark reality that people were living on the streets hit me. I spent four years in the streets of San Juan and the rest of Puerto Rico. So when it was time to run, my party did not want me. And they told me, you're too liberal. Mm. You're too liberal. Uh, and I said, but you know what? It is a coalition of voices that will defeat 
an incumbent that doesn't care about anyone's voice but himself. So my slogan was, I am the voice of a new San Juan, mm-hmm. meaning I am the echo of all those voices. I came in a professional capacity when I was working in philanthropy to San Juan, Umacao, Jabucoa, mm-hmm. to look at the impact of Hurricane Maria. How did Maria change what your mission was as mayor? Well, I, I think it, well, I don't think I know, and the listeners are not going to see this, but I have a sign, which I'm showing to you, that says 3,000. Mm-hmm. I have this on my desk, so that I remember that there were 3,000 at least silenced voices. Yes. Those that were called upon to do their job decided that our jobs, our, our lives were not worth saving. And you're talking about the lack of cooperation by U.S. agencies, et cetera, to help the people of San Juan and of Puerto Rico. Yes. And, you know, of directed, of course, by then President Trump. First of all, the San Juan and the Puerto Rico that I knew and loved are there no more. We changed overnight. The world starts counting from Maria, which is September 20th, but September 6th, 14 days before it's Irma. That's 2017 when this happened. Mm Yes, 2017. So September 6th, it's Irma. That was like the Muhammad Ali of hurricanes. Mm. You know, uh, right hand, left hand. We had not even gotten rid of everything from Irma when here comes Maria and just wipes her electrical system completely off. Um, so if, if you don't have electricity in many places in Puerto Rico, you don't have water. Mm-hmm. So you have two essential things wiped out completely. As it happens in any crisis, all of the inequalities and all of the difference between the ones that have and have not start surfacing and are are there in 3D for everyone to see. It is uh, mentioned that Puerto Rico lost about 30 million trees. Uh. And and I once said, we will not be able to hide our discrimination and our inequality behind palm trees and piña coladas. Mm -hmm. Meaning even nature decided like, no, no, no. I'm not going to cover this poor neighborhood underneath the bridge with beautiful flowers. You're going to see it raw as it was. So my immediate goal was to save lives, no matter what cost, no matter the political implication. It was to tell the truth of what was going on. It was to speak up um, and not become complicit to a narrative that told the world that this is a good news story. You know, um, I'm amazed at the job we've done in Puerto Rico. While, while I was seeing people dying, uh, mm-hmm. pulling people from rubble, um, seeing people take their last breath, uh, you know, it, it, it changed me as a, as a human completely. And as a mayor, it made me laser focus on one thing, saving lives. And you were out there in your waders, in all sorts of, you know, water up to your waist. You were out there with people. I moved to the largest shelter in Puerto Rico, which was in San Juan. And I lived there for three and a half months. Mm. 
because I figured I'm no better than anyone else. And if I'm there, I will make sure that people's needs are taken care of. Right. When there's no communication, there are decisions that are life and death that have to be made right on the spot. Mm-hmm. And not everyone wants to make those decisions because, uh, and, and you have to forgive me if my my voice starts cracking up a little bit. When, when you are in a situation like that, every decision that you make takes resources away from other people. Mm-hmm. So you know that if you decide to do something, you will not get somewhere else perhaps early enough. And I, I can guarantee you it is not the smiles of the people that you save that stay with you. It is the, um, the silence of those mm-hmm. that you do not get to. And every day I ask God to let them know that it was that we couldn't get to them, mm-hmm. not that we did not want to get to them. Yeah. And that is a, a burden that I don't wish on, on people to carry. When Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, there was a lot of very disturbing value signaling, like, oh, you know, they need to take care of themselves, essentially. How did you deal with what could be called the abandonment of the whole island? Well, you know, Puerto Rico has a complicated relationship with the United States. There are Puerto Ricans that feel like second-class citizens, which we undoubtedly are. And and nowhere was it seen more when the neglect killed the Puerto Rican people. You know, you can kill yeah. people with a with a gun or you can kill them with neglect. I even pleaded and begged the president at the time. And of course, the response was, you are an island surrounded by water, lots and lots of water, ocean water. And that's why it takes so long for aid to get there. No, that's not why it took so long. It took so long because we're people of color. We are a colony. And for that um, particular commander in chief, our lives were expendable. Mm. You know, and it took me about five months for a reporter to ask me, why do you think this happened? It took me about five months to say, because of racism. Mm. Because I just did not want to believe that people would go so far as to let others die because of who they were. Well, we will certainly continue to track how people like you, who are so instrumental to the future of Puerto Rico, are helping to give us an understanding of the road ahead. And I thank you for talking to us. I am um, humbled, really. Thank you for, for being a platform for so many voices. That was the former mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico, Carmen Juline Cruz, on what it took to guide her people through the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. Coming up next, our weekly roundtable Sippin' the Political Tea talks ballot security with Kim Whaley, a law professor and advisor at Protect Democracy, and Tammy Patrick, a senior advisor to the elections program at Democracy Fund. You're listening to Our Body Politic.
This week on Sip in the Political Tea, we're going to take a look at election security. Midterm Elections Day, November 8th, will be here before we know it. But in addition to trying to persuade us who to vote for, some people are wrangling over whether the vote is secure. Here to talk about that with us this week is Kim Whaley, visiting professor of law at American University, author of several books, including What You Need to Know About Voting and Why, and an advisor at Protect Democracy. We also have Tammy Patrick, a senior advisor to the elections program at Democracy Fund. So welcome back, Kim. Thanks for having me, Farai. And Tammy, welcome to the show. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. So this week, we're going to dig into election security. A recent Washington Post poll of likely voters shows a deep divide between Republicans and Democrats. Many Republican candidates would not say whether they will accept election results after the ballots are counted. Tammy, the 2016 presidential election comes to mind. Despite winning the popular vote, Hillary Clinton did not win the Electoral College and Donald Trump became president. And that's pretty much what our government is designed to do. So what do you think will happen if candidates refuse to concede and accept results that are not in their favor, whether at the presidential level or any other? So you mentioned the 2016 election, and I think that the 2016 election was particularly interesting and uh, a real shift in the narrative for another reason, and that is because the candidate who won cast aspersions on the legitimacy of the election. So that really changed the sights on how our candidates accept either the defeat or the victory. And it is happening up and down the ticket. What we know from the last few years is that in the public square, in the minds and hearts of voters, it is incredibly important that those who lose do so gracefully, graciously, and move onward to fight another day. But that's not what we're seeing. I want to talk about another Republican, Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming. She lost her primary to a Trump-backed challenger. It was expected. And here's what she had to say at the Texas Tribune Festival. I think that Donald Trump is, he's the only president in American history who refused to guarantee a peaceful transition of power. And so um, now... The fact that my party has refused in the months since then to stand up to him, I think, does tell you how sick the party is. And so now there are a number of political books uh, coming out this fall talking about wrangling over the impeachment of Donald Trump and how it divided both Democrats and Republicans in terms of their own strategies. And, you know, I think to a a different election cycle, Tammy, the 2000 campaign, it came down to hundreds of votes in Florida. Al Gore gracefully conceded. And in that climate, this may not happen. Florida lacked a standardized procedure for recounting in a close election. Do we know what's changed in Florida and nationally when it comes to recounts? So the 2000 election um, really changed the way that election administration occurs in this country. The Help America Vote Act was passed a couple of years after the fact and um, solidified a lot of institutional procedures and processes around how our elections are conducted, how our voting systems are tested, standards for our voting equipment, the right to a provisional ballot, a a number of things that were codified at that time. So in the last, you know, 20 years almost at this point, there has been a shift in how elections are administered. 
every state has some mechanism in place if someone believes that the election was in fact um, incorrect, if there's evidence of criminal activity or actual fraud that affected the outcome of the election. They have that recourse in court. Um, And that's what we have seen is that when there are challenges and questions, it's brought before the courts and then there's a determination that is made. But unfortunately, since uh, the last presidential election, it doesn't seem to matter what the court decisions come down to. It doesn't seem to matter what conspiracies are debunked. It doesn't seem to matter to some of our fellow citizens what the truth of the matter is, because there's a continual drumbeat to keep them, I often say, engaged, enraged, and donating. There's a lot of money Mm. to be had and to be made in this moment, and there are many people capitalizing on it. But we have seen on both sides of the aisle questions raised around the legitimacy of our elections. And 2020, as Chris Krebs often has been quoted as saying, was the most secure election we've ever seen. But I also would move to say that it was the most transparent, the most observed, the most litigated, the most audited. The question will be whether or not the voters accept the outcomes and whether or not our leaders, whether they win or lose on the ballot, accept the outcome as well. And Kim, you've written a number of explanatory books about the law. One of them is What You Need to Know About Voting and Why. And how do you make sense of the mechanisms and safeguards that can reassure voters that election outcomes are accurate when some people, including some politicians, seem to be bent on saying, no, no, it's just not fair, no matter what the outcome is? Listen, there are so many distortions, as uh, Tammy indicated, in this entire process. I mean, the way law works is around incentives and disincentives. You know, uh, it's a crime to to vote illegally in elections across the country, and people have been prosecuted and, and go to jail for that, in addition to all of the auditing mechanisms that are in place to ensure safe and fair elections, in addition to the fact that it takes, you know, thousands and thousands of volunteers to make elections work. These are not people that are politicians seeking to gain power or to get one party in power over another. These are our friends, our neighbors, our teachers, um, you know, our religious leaders. These are regular people. They are not engaging in fraud. But it, it does tap into a much bigger problem for I. I can't help but think about Shea Moss, who testified before the House Select Committee, a black elections worker whose life was threatened and her grandmother's as well by people who thought that the election was stolen. This is a problem across the country now. If you want to do a patriotic thing, the sacred task of making elections work, are you going to be accused of fraud? Are you going to be harassed? For those two women, this came from the president of the United States. I mean, there's a direct line between what's going on here and the broader structure of our democracy. Um, The Constitution is not self-executing. It's only a piece of paper. It only works if we believe in uh, its legitimacy and if it can be enforced through the courts. But what we're talking about here, this idea of pretending that elections are fraudulent, what this kind of potentially foretells is politicians in power then get to dictate who is 
the legitimate winner by virtue of propaganda. If it's not Mm. going to be based on accurate facts because we sort of attack that legitimacy, then people in power get to decide. That's no longer democracy. And that's really the problem that we're talking about here. You are listening to Sippin' the Political Tea on Our Body Politic. I am Farai Chidea. This week, we're doing a special roundtable on election security with Kimberly Whaley, visiting professor of law at American University, and she's also with the organization Protect Democracy, and Tammy Patrick of Democracy Fund. Um, Tammy, you have had some deep experience around governance in Arizona. Can you tell us a little bit about your previous work in Arizona, which has become a hotbed of some of these contentions about voter fraud as well? Yeah. So um, about 20 years ago, I was concerned about the state of democracy in the United States. I didn't understand it as well as I felt I should. So I left my corporate job and went to work um, for the county, hiring 8,000 poll workers to serve their community in conducting the election. Uh, And I served in Maricopa County as the federal compliance officer. And what I quickly, quickly learned 20 years ago is that our elections are full of checks and balances of nonpartisan and bipartisan observers to ensure that when that final declaration of the official results are done, that it is in fact reflective of the will of the people. When it comes down to the core values of making sure eligible citizens have the right to access to the ballot and that those ballots are correctly and accurately counted and the correct winner is announced and put into office, that is the basic tenet that all election officials, whether they're a poll worker, a secretary of state, or a county supervisor, auditor, recorder, registrar, (laughs) auditor, whatever title they go by, they all take an oath of office. They all swear to defend the Constitution and the laws of both their state and this nation and to protect the voters. Now, what we've seen is that those are the very same individuals, whether they're poll workers or state or local election officials, who are under attack in this moment because far too many of our fellow citizens have believed the narrative that the 2020 election was stolen, that it was not legitimate, and we know that that is not true. Um, But unfortunately, that continues to play out. My former colleagues receive death threats. Their children are followed on the way to school. They're being harassed and harangued. Every election office in this country pretty much is now being inundated with FOIA requests to retain election materials from 2020, which are normally destroyed after two years. Um, They are inundated Kim, what are we relying on to stabilize or better the situation we're in, which is widespread distrust among a significant minority of the population that that really seems to have no faith in the process? How does this pivot? What are you looking to to turn the ship? You know, that's a really hard question for I because, you know, this Supreme Court has said in, you know, recently in the Dobbs decision overruling Roe versus Wade, that if something's not expressed in the Constitution, it's it's in jeopardy. People have talked about gay marriage and contraception, but there's a whole litany of constitutional rights that we enjoy that aren't expressed. They're implied in the Constitution. And the court for decades has said, listen, the right to vote is the fulcrum. It's the centerpiece of democracy. The framers couldn't really agree on language. And they essentially said, 
um, in the elections clause, uh, two things. One, the power to regulate elections goes to states. However, the federal government through Congress can regulate federal elections. And there's an important case on the court's docket this year called Moore versus Harper, where they've picked up one of these fringe theories that failed in the 60 plus cases that the Trump team brought to try to challenge the 2020 presidential election results. And essentially it's reading the text of the constitution as giving state legislatures exclusive authority to decide election outcomes through that regulatory authority saying, listen, state constitutions, state judges, you know, any other source of law doesn't count. It's gerrymandered state legislatures. So unfortunately, I'm becoming less and less sanguine that there's a clear outcome unless more of our sort of rights that we take for granted as Americans uh, the ability to make decisions about our health care, reproductive health care is number one. Um, more of those kind of start to go and people feel the pinch of how important it is to actually protect our democratic right to decide for ourselves. And this midterm is absolutely vital to whether democracy itself will survive. But if if the, the, the House of Representatives goes to Republican control and there's so many election deniers in that caucus, um, January 6th committee will end, that process will end, and there are always going to be attacks on the legitimacy of our current president, Joe Biden, through probably through impeachment hearings. So a lot of sort of strikes against American democracy in this moment and voting, but we've survived worse. And I have to think the American spirit and the, and the desire for true liberty uh, will ring true in the end, but it takes these kinds of conversations and people who are listening, who believe in democracy to start being conscious about this and, and actually putting this at the top of the list um, of things that are priorities in their lives to try to sway public opinion back towards the freedoms that are protected through the right to vote. Tammy, there are a, a huge number of election officials who are just qu- quitting their jobs and just saying, I'm not going to risk my life for a job that isn't even a full-time job where I get paid almost nothing. And I was doing this out of, the you know, my faith in the system, but the system's not going to protect me. You also have a different type of violence, which is the digital violence of cybercrime, Russian interference in our elections, other state actors, and of course, U.S. cyber actors um, and disinformation. How do we deal with those threats as well? So since the 2016 election, elections were declared critical infrastructure, and there was a real focus on securing the cybersecurity of our election systems. So we know that there are foreign adversaries and foreign actors around the globe who at this moment are amplifying and leveraging this domestic strife and using it to further divide the American electorate um, amongst ourselves. So quite frankly, uh, they're sitting back with glee as as we battle it out internally around some of these issues. People are throwing up their hands in disgust because they feel like they are disempowered in this moment. But I would plead 
with everyone who's listening that in this moment, we have to recognize the power that voters continue to hold in this country. The power of voters to turn out in a global pandemic in 2020 against insurmountable odds, really, um, are why we were able to survive as a democracy, and we need them to turn out in this moment as well. We need to make sure that people are voting for candidates that support free and fair elections, that support funding our election infrastructure as well, because you're absolutely right. Our elections are underfunded, they're under-resourced, and they're overworked and overwrought. And just realize that you need to ensure that the candidates that you're voting for represent your values and want your vote to count. Because at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. we have candidates running who don't, in fact, believe in free and fair elections. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up there. Thank you so much, Tammy. Thank you for having me. And thank you, Kim. Always a pleasure, Fry. Thanks for having me. That was Kim Whaley of Protect Democracy. She's also a visiting professor of law at American University. And Tammy Patrick, senior advisor to the elections program at Democracy Fund. We're partnering with URL Media to report on your questions ahead of the 2022 midterm elections, which take place on November 8th. Midterms tend to get less turnout than presidential years, but the politicians running for Congress, Senate, governor, and local office have a massive influence over our lives. So we are gathering questions from you so that we can answer them with reporters from the URL media family. What do you want to know about how politics are impacting your life and or community right now? You can respond to us on Instagram or Twitter at Our Body Politic to find our submission form and leave your question there. You can also call us at 929-353-7006. That's 929-353-7006. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We are on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm host and executive producer for Rai Chidea. Nina Spensley is also executive producer. Bianca Martin is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister and Tracy Caldwell are our booking producers. Anoa Changa, Emily J. Daly, and Steve Lack are our producers. Natina Bean and Emily Ho are our associate producers. Kelsey Kudak is our fact checker. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at Three Cs. Today's episode was produced with the help of Lauren Schild and engineered by Carter Martin and Archie Moore. This program is produced with support from the Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.